Hello, I'm Penny Bell. Welcome to Discovering Dementia, a podcast that started as a way of sharing stories after my mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. This time we're meeting Julia Hales, a sustainability pioneer who started her environmental career in the 80s and who, like me, has a mum with dementia. Julia always had an extremely close bond with her mother and the onset of dementia has had a huge effect. More recently, their lives have also been touched by COVID-19. And as a general note, I should let you know this episode mentions suicide, assisted dying and Dignitas, the Swiss clinic which helps people to end their own lives. With lockdown restrictions still in place, Julia and I were able to connect via the internet for our conversation. This is her story. I'm Julia Hales and I work as an environmental consultant, writer, speaker, whatever. I've been doing it for over 35 years. I'm not just a consultant, but I'm a campaigning consultant and I'm really keen to make a positive difference in terms of what I'm doing. At the moment, my latest excitement is that I'm beginning a wilding project in uh, Dorset and I'm just about to start on the back of that a, a vlogging podcast and various other things. I've been blogging for a long time, but I haven't really got onto vlogging, but I'm just about to start doing that, which is really fun. And tell me about your mum. My mum, I call her Moo. The the rest of the world call her Minka. Um, it's a nickname that she got very early on. And in fact, even now, many years later, she's in a care home at the very late stages of dementia. But the one thing that she said to me quite early on in the process was she didn't want to be referred to as Mrs Hales or Mrs Soames or indeed Marianne, which was her original name. She wanted everyone to refer to her as Minka. So it's quite interesting because when you go into the home, you have to sign in and everybody is referred to by Mrs X except for her. And what kind of dementia does she have? Um, Well... I think she has vascular dementia as her main one. But what I've learned quite early on is that most people have a sort of mix of a number of different types. And so they said there's probably a bit of Alzheimer's in there and other types kicking in. All my life, I've had an incredibly strong relationship with my mum. I absolutely adore her. And we've just been extremely good friends, share everything. I could tell her anything that went on. We've maintained that, you know, all the life. So actually, my mum was there at the birth of all of my children. You know, she was absolutely played a huge part in the role of all my children as well. So they've been very involved in in loving her, really. But also for her, the uh, last few years of her being there in full and sound marriage, she really experienced them and, and enjoyed them, you know, and shared them with me, which was, you know, magical to have had that and, and, and really lucky. So you were telling me about your childhood growing up and how close you were. What was family life like? Well, I think I had a pretty idyllic childhood, actually, because I have three siblings, two brothers and a sister. We grew up in a gorgeous country house in Somerset. And just lots and lots of people coming in all the time. And my mother was a huge enthusiast and incredibly energetic. And she was always giving parties. One of the parties I particularly remember is she had an idea about having a butterfly party. 
so in order to make it a butterfly party, she brought in masses of pupae to develop into caterpillars um, with the idea that they were all going to hatch by the time of the party and that we'd have butterflies fluttering around everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I don't think there were that many obvious butterflies, but we all enjoyed the whole process <laughs> of doing it. She sounds quite fun. Well, I think that a lot of people say that she's uh, she was quite eccentric in terms of the things, but she really gave us a sort of very magical time. But she also, from a work point of view, she was always into some enthusiasm that would, you know, maybe be making some money with one scheme or another. So she bought a, a farm and then decided that the farm wasn't necessarily going to be earning enough money. So she decided that she'd also get into butchering but she'd also be decorating our houses or, you know, getting into some sewing thing or I don't know, whatever it was. She was really enthusiastic and threw herself into it wholeheartedly. So actually, the whole thing of my mum starting to get dementia was the most extraordinary thing. And I think probably like most people, you know, it just was not a conceivable thing that we ever countenance would happen. And I heard about people with Alzheimer's and and things and thought that was dreadful but it never really occurred to me how directly it would affect me and even at the beginning I just couldn't really conceive of how it would play out and I was incredibly ignorant of it so it was really difficult just getting people to empathize and understand what it was like living with someone going through that from the very very early stages. So when did you first realize there was something wrong? My sister and I, I think both of us have a very close relationship with with my mum. And so we just started picking up more and more signs. And I think that obviously people imagine that it's just forgetfulness. And there is forgetfulness. And, you know, suddenly she'd forget her walking stick and then she'd forget, you know, where her glasses were, all the sort of normal things. But she'd, you know, it just got worse and worse and worse. She'd forget everything. But actually, there were sort of other slightly more subtle signs of things like not being able to cope in a situation that she'd normally just cope with with the flying colours, not being able to cook a Sunday lunch without getting in a bit of a flap, a bit uncomfortable about driving, thinking particularly at night and feeling that she might suddenly sort of slightly wonder where she was and take the wrong turning or that type of things coming through. It's very difficult to remember all the the sort of order. But I think one of the things that was, in a way, the most shocking to me was the deterioration in empathy and the, the sort of connections between you. And obviously, you know, this got worse. We went to see one of my mum's greatest friends who was dying. And, you know, she she had absolutely adored him for the whole of the time that they'd known each other. And then when we went to see him and we knew that he, you know, that was probably her last visit to, to see him. And when she came out, it's like she hadn't really realised the significance of it. It's not that she wasn't, you know, she was unpleasant or anything else, but it just, to me, it just seemed like a really big deal. And to her, it was something that she just sort of, you know, moved on from in a way that just didn't seem quite right. So all those things where you lose that connection with someone in that way, and I suppose as it deteriorated, that lack of empathy became stronger and stronger. And we began to realise that even if we said, 
you know, that something really terrible had happened to one of our children or something, that she would have just said, oh, that's terrible, but not really felt it. Absolutely. I completely understand that. Yes. So yeah. you, you lose... You, the person is there, but they're not really there, you know, even if they can speak, even before they lose that. Because if you don't have that empathy and that understanding and that connection, it's, you know, it's really, really hard. And you stop being able to really have any conversation with them. And did you find that you were not telling her things that were going on within the family because you knew there'd be no reaction, that it would fall a bit flat? It you didn't sort of... make any... There was no point telling her what you know you you told her because actually you wanted to to say something and to talk but it no longer became a sharing exercise you weren't really sharing anything because it never really registered yeah. and you know the connections were just seeping away and when you've had such a close connection and rapport with someone where you've shared you know your decisions in life you know that there's the one person you can really who will really be thinking about you and, and, you know, what to do in whatever situation, to lose that in pieces so you can never really mourn it's going because you, you can't really mourn someone while they're still alive and yet you have really lost them. One of the things about my mum is that she, um, she and my father were both absolutely determined that they did not want to live beyond, you know, their proper sort of life expectancy and they, they didn't want to live in a deteriorated state. My father actually died 25 years ago now. He had a stroke and uh, or a number of series of strokes and he became incredibly incapacitated. He and my mum had signed up to Dignitas and it was incredibly tragic because, you know, obviously with strokes, you get incapacitated in, in a sudden hit and therefore it became impossible for him to do anything about it. But the reason for explaining that is that I think that what he went through, knowing where he'd come from, really profoundly affected my mother. So when she first picked up that her memory was going, I think that it was rather frightening for her. And she said to me, there's something wrong with my memory. I, you know, I really, it's not just normal. I really feel there's something funny. She was sort of in her 80s anyway at that stage, early 80s. We noticed the small signs coming. And it was interesting because my brothers, who obviously love my mum very much, but they just didn't pick up on those signs. And they'd sort of say to my sister and I, you know, well, you know, we just don't think you're right. That's right. That what's happening. And then the thing that really was a big turning point. One morning, I, um, I got a phone call, sort of eight, nine o'clock in the morning. And um, it was my mother's cleaner. And she had come in and found my mum on the bathroom floor and she tried to kill herself. And um, so I got the call. I raced over there. Um, I said, you know, obviously call the ambulance and whatever. And, and by the time I got there, the ambulance uh, men were there. They were very baffled because they found her saying, I don't want to waste the NHS resources. You know, that was sort of like what she got into her brain as something that she wanted to hold on to because she was due to have a, a heart operation in a few months after that. And I think she part of her thing was thinking she didn't want what happened to my father to happen to her and that she'd promised herself that she wouldn't let that happen to her. So she was going to kill herself before she was not able to do it anymore. Part of herself was thinking that she wanted to get it ahead of the operation 
because then she wouldn't be wasting the NHS resources by having an operation to save her life, which she didn't want. And then the other part was sort of my fault in a way that I hadn't really realised is that a few months before that, my mum had always said to me, you know, you must take me to Switzerland when the time comes, sort of knowing that you'll be able to do that is great comfort to me. And I said, yeah, you know, well, maybe I'll be able to do that. I don't know. But it, it never seemed that important. I always thought, well, it probably won't ever come to it. So I didn't worry about it. I just thought that's fine. And then I, I think maybe it was in the news or whatever else, but it became clear that with the legislation that we have, that they don't let you go to Switzerland if you're not of sound mind. You can go there if you've got a terminal disease, but you have to sort of go there with, you know, quite specific conditions. I said to her, to Mu, you know, well, I don't think that you'd probably be able to go to Switzerland unless you were. There's very specific things and, it, you know, you have to be a sound mind, etc. And so, you know, you may not be able to do that. But obviously, you know, if you could and that was OK, it would be all right. And then she just she said, but you said you'd take me. And she sort of was unreasonably hysterical about it. I thought, gosh, this is, you know, I think that was a turning point because it suddenly made her think that the safety net that she had always thought was there wasn't there. And it was a few months later that she then actually tried to take her life. So she went on to have her heart surgery. So then the heart surgery thing was just really terrible because it's all part of the if you like, the backup services not really giving us the support and help that we need and really tailoring what their, you know, their advice to individual situations. I That's how I feel about it, because, you know, she had a lovely doctor, but I feel that even though he knew that she tried to take her own life and she put every possible caveat in her doctor's thing about living wills and all those type of things, he didn't look at the other side of it, which is having an operation at 82 or 3 when you've already got dementia coming on is not the greatest, you know, recommendation because it absolutely knocked her from the dementia point of view. I don't think she ever picked up where she'd got to at that point. And I mean, we took her in, you know, I think that if I hadn't supported it, that my sister was more against it than than I had been and things I think she wouldn't have had it and I really regret that I think that was the wrong decision and and I think that I probably could have carried my my brothers as well from not doing it so it was a joint decision but I sort of feel that it was probably a lot to do with me and so we took her in and we stayed the night in a a hotel uh, quite close by and we had the most lovely evening went out to a lovely dinner we had a lovely chatty time and then we went into the hospital and my mum was incredibly cheerful and as usual looking forward to everything and getting this done and over and things because all her life she's the most positive person ever so sailing away waving cheerily as she went (laughs) that makes me cry um and then we went off for the day and we had to, you know, we went all shopping. We knew that this was all going on. And then we came back and we went in to see her. And she was like a corpse. And I just felt like I'd killed her because it was just so stark. And I think that actually, I think people who go in for heart operations, whatever age, probably a bit like that, like when you first go and see them, because it, it does completely knock you back. Um, and the things but the shock of just seeing the contrast between the cheery 
goodbye and when you go in and see you know what what happened and because she, and she did after a few days you know gradually come back and and be better but she was never ever the same again and i think you know i think the hospitals and the you know the care service and things they don't realize those type of things that it would make quite a lot of difference to really have more of an understanding as as your you know carer supporter of, of of what it actually means and what choices you really are making and i definitely think that to think really carefully about having operations in your 80s and 90s and really think about you know whether it makes sense for the person and the whole picture not just one bit of the picture so when your mum came out of hospital, did she go back to her own home and look after herself or did you have to make a different plan? No. At that point, we we realised that she needed to sell her house. So then there was a huge thing about what to do in terms of where she went next. She had her husband, but he didn't have dementia, but he wasn't able to do any sort of caring or looking after or whatever. So anyway, we had a, a big sort of thing about it and eventually managed to organize it that she went and lived with my brother but during that time obviously it was rather a pivotal time because it was a sort of turning point time and she would sometimes just go off into Kruka on her own and try and sort of hitchhike into there she was really lacking in inhibition my mum so and she loved people and whatever else so she was sort of flagging down because a number of friends would ring up and say I just saw your mum you know hitchhiking down the street and you know then she'd get somewhere and not know where she was so just increasingly not really able to look off herself. So sort of financially, there were sort of issues about just spending money, not really knowing what she was spending it on or that type of thing. Not really being able to plan meals, running the bath. So it just completely overflowed all over the whole house because she'd just forgotten that it was on. So there's a whole range of, of things. But I think one of the things is, it's quite odd is that some of the things that she had loved doing before she no longer gave her the pleasure so for example gardening she always been really keen on gardening loved it and everything else but she couldn't really connect with doing it anymore it just sort of like it just didn't give her the the thing so actually she really needed people I think more than anything I mean I saw her a lot and went off and, and did things but she needed that company and someone to do something with her uh, not being just left on your own to work out your own things. And that side of things became worse and worse. She had a lovely dog who we've now got. And that was great because it took her off on walks and things. Maybe he helped her come home as well <laughs> because he'd know how to get back. So that was a, a very tricky sort of in transition period. But, you know, we saw a lot of her and she still was able to enjoy her family, I suppose. And then um, her husband, Robin, he died but he died rather nice way in some ways because he sort of got ill for not that long and then he went so I, I think that's sort of how we'd all quite like our parents to go in in some ways after Robin died it was obvious that she needed more support than she was able to get and so it was the time to try and move her into a home and we found this really we thought really lovely place you could take all your furniture, decorate your room as you wanted. She could take the dog. A really nice lady that ran it. And it was a you know, lovely old house and she had a big room in the top and sort of old rectory. So that was fantastic. And they were very helpful because they actually went and sort of walked the dog in the morning a bit. But of course, you know, watching that deterioration and seeing how it worked. And when she went there, we were so keen on 
her making friends with the other residents. And there were some really lovely, lovely other residents. But she'd lost, you know, this most sociable, gregarious, extrovert lady. She lost the skills about making friends and how it worked, connecting with people. And she didn't pick up the signals in the way that she had before. So she would go into the meal with her tray and someone would be sort of signalling, come and sit with us and things. And, and she'd go and sit on another table or maybe sit but not say anything or whatever. And you just sort of see that all those things that we take for granted go in a way that is quite strange. And I think that, you know, learning that there are so many bits to dementia that make us who we are that we don't even realise and they slowly go, all those things. So that ability to make friends, the empathy and, and the, you know, obviously getting stressed. Then also, when you go into a home like that, they said it was end of life care so that they would take you right the way through. And they did have people with dementia. But as we said earlier on, there are lots of different types of dementia and people behave in very different ways when they get dementia. And so I suppose if you were the sort of person that got dementia and you, you know, just sat in your chair gently cogitating away, then that was fine. But my mother wasn't like that. She was quite an active person. So she was there sort of climbing out of the window, going off on walks and getting lost, not knowing where she was, going into everybody's room in the home because she, you know, she thought it was like a, the things that she'd just visit anybody she wanted whenever she wanted. So there was quite a lot of storm about how you mustn't go into other people's rooms, but she couldn't really take that on board. So she just did. And they they weren't very good at dealing with that side of things. They didn't know how to deal with it. It was sort of somehow it was just presented all the time as a as a problem that she was sort of breaking the rules and not being good. She was never really like being there. So when we went to take her out, which I did all the time, in fact, she was sort of at my house probably almost as much as being at the home. We would have her for the weekends and whatever. And she didn't want to go back. So then it was awful, it was heartrending, taking her back somewhere where she didn't want to go. And it wasn't, they, you know, they were very kind. And at the beginning we thought, well, you know, it was quite good because they had some sort of morning entertainment and we made sure that she was signed up for everything that they could do. But we realised that the one of the things is that you stop being able to manage your day in the way that we do. I mean, I get up in the morning and I think I'm doing this, this, this. She couldn't do that anymore. So you need someone else really to do that for you. And they didn't really do that. So she was then just in her room with a long blank of nothing. And she started taking her clothes off. She went into somebody's room and took her clothes off in there. That caused a huge scandal. But the worst thing, in my view, for them, because I think that for many people, they were a good home. So I, I, I don't want to sort of denigrate them from that point of view. But for for my mum, uh, not, but they said this is no longer, you know, a good place for your mum. They didn't say, actually, here are some ideas about what you might do. It was like, you are now responsible for finding somewhere else for her. They didn't give us any ideas. They didn't sort of... So it was like she was expelled, basically, without, you know, what you do next. And we were learning, you know, we thought, and they should have been experts in old age and end of life care, whatever, you'd have thought that they then had, you know, actually, this isn't right, because our doors are not locked. And this is the sort of place you need to look to. And here are some of the ones in the local area or whatever, they need to have a more relationship with other organisations. 
But the brilliant thing is that my sister actually found somewhere not that far away. And it's been absolutely brilliant. And the extraordinary thing is that when my mother went there, from the day that she went there, she didn't show any of the others. She never took her clothes off again. and She never did any of those, I'm bored, I want attention things. Because they had a whole different way of managing it. And they were totally professional about dementia. And they knew what they were doing. And any of the things, I mean, if she had taken her clothes off, as other residents did do, or any of those sort of things, they knew how to deal with it, which is not to make a big deal of it. If somebody was wearing somebody else's necklace or watch, they didn't sort of make, oh, you've stolen that. Or there was nothing like that. It was just, oh, yeah, that's okay. That's what they all do. You know, nothing was a worry. And it totally took that pressure off my mum and she bonded with the people that were there. When you first had to make the decision that she should go to her home as a family, how did that make you all feel? Well, I think that I had always felt that I would have my mum to live with me. And so actually that I found it really hard to accept the fact that a home was the best place for her to be. But I think that one of the things I learned, and it's even for the first home, you know, but obviously particularly for the second one, was that actually everybody looks at it as like, you know, last thing that we want is to go to a care home and that we want them to be at home and looked after at home. Now, for some people who are not necessarily very social, that might be the right decision. But you really have to look at the person. And, you know, if my mother had been here, we have quite a lot of things going on, different people coming in and builders and whatever. But it wouldn't have been enough attention for her because she needed like full time, not just care, but actual entertainment and things that are going on and things to be a part of. And certainly in the second home, they really catered for that. So instead of her bedroom just being like everything, they got her up in the morning and she was down in the communal area. And then she had visiting the local hospice or going on expeditions and go and see the donkey, go down to the sea, tea dances musicians coming in sing-alongs poetry scrabble bingo you know all sorts of things and she loved it because she participated in everything I think that's an interesting point because a lot of people do and I'm doing it myself think oh home is where they need to be with all their Mm. things and they're familiar with the surroundings and so on but actually there perhaps does come a point where that's not the right place and you know that sounds like it's been in the end a positive move for her Actually, funny enough, I would have been where you may be. I would have thought no to a home on almost sort of all counts and if you can possibly look after them at home and keep them there. But I actually feel almost entirely the opposite now. I think it's very rarely the best thing for them longer term. Because if you imagine sitting there on your own, not really having much going on, you know, for a lot of people, that's not something. I mean, I would go nuts because for me people is everything I would just want somebody around and and in a care home they've got things going on that is engaging them and they're watching and how are things now so it's been an incredible slow slide probably with some steps along the way at the beginning she was out there doing these expeditions and so that was really nice to be able to to do that on a daily basis but sometimes you know you go in and there was just less and less response really and gradually obviously the walking deteriorates the speech deteriorates the the things and everybody always asks you 
about whether they recognize you or not. And that's almost like the sort of marker. And when I said, well, she does generally recognize me, there's a sort of assumption that it's not that bad. And I could never sort of really explain that it was really bad and that she was really deteriorating and really there was hardly any of her there, even though she did recognize me. The most recent thing is then what happened with this terrible COVID. Because the first thing is I went off on a business trip in very early March. And then I thought, I better not just go and see her immediately because I don't want to be responsible for taking the, you know, the virus into the home. So I sort of waited. And that morning I got an email saying the home is closed and you can't come and see her. It was just horrible timing in terms of that process. So I sort of said, well, couldn't I just come and look at her through the window or take her out in the wheelchair and just see her or, you know, the things. Anyway, nothing was fair enough. You understand that that's what they, you know, they had to do. But it was it was a very painful thing. And then they told us that COVID had arrived in the home. A couple of people had tested positive. And then they rang and said that they thought that my mum might have it. But obviously, you know, I wanted to be with her before she went and see her. And they said, actually, you can come in, you and your sister can come in and see her um, before she goes. So we all sort of rather assumed that it would take her away, as as you do. But it's such an incredibly erratic thing, isn't it, that we don't really know what's going to happen. So we went into the home and it was it was horrid, it had a sort of eerie feel to it because it was silent and all the staff were in full masks and suits nobody can smile with those masks on because you can't see and then you know unless they're really good at smiling with their eyes nobody can smile with a covid mask and so it was just like really horrid and then we went all up the sort of the back stairs and they they said oh she's in there and there was a sort of hazmat suit hanging on the back of her door anyway we went to the room we had to put the hazmat suit on and then we got the masks so face mask here and then another those uh plastic masks over the top but it all just felt so awful as if that was the last time that I see my mum she wasn't going to know who we were I mean maybe from our voices but you know we're just like all the other weird and strange people in the home you know going to see her so it was horrible as an experience because it was just not how you want to say goodbye to anybody and I don't know whether she recognised us I'll never know that but obviously living through that time I mean how confusing for everybody who's got dementia at different stages obviously she's very advanced stage I think we just have to hope that she's so past it that that this stage she hasn't really noticed but it does make my heart ache for the people who are in maybe slightly earlier stage who are cognizant enough to know that this is not what they think but not really cognizant to, to know why and you know why people aren't coming in to to see them so yeah, we had to leave her like that. And then she didn't die. And I'd sort of psyched myself up to that. But but I was sort of ready for that to happen. But it, it, it didn't happen. And then people started saying, how is your mum? And then you say, well, actually, she didn't die. She's OK. You know, as in she's OK. She hasn't died from COVID. But actually, she's not OK because she's even worse in terms of knowing who we are. So last few months or however long it lasts, you're not getting any of that physical contact that you want. But the thing they said, you know, once she got through it, they said, oh, well, we're keeping in her, her room for her own protection. 
And so I just, I talked to my sister, I ran back and said, please don't keep her in her room for her own protection, because that's the only thing that we don't want. We want her to have as much of a sort of social connection as she could possibly have. And the only reason for keeping her in her room is for the safety of the staff and the other residents and I think they have now started having people in the communal areas and they're testing more and the things but that lack of testing was terrible because it meant that they had to do precautionary keeping people in their room and if you think that one being kept in your room all day on your own is bad enough but actually you have very little physical contact because every time someone comes in if they think you might have covid they have to put on the full suit which means they're not going to come in very much, you know, because if every room that they go into, they have to put the whole full thing on and take it off again. It means that your contact with people is really minimal. So when everyone's talking about the lack of testing, it's it's all about getting the infection in the home and bringing it into things. But actually, the other side of it is the isolation that people feel unnecessarily because of that, because of not being able to be confirmed that you either are or you aren't. And I think that is a, a terrible side of it that is not really being thought of in that way of how those those connections and for some people I think the not seeing people is much worse than dying and obviously my mum is in that category but I think that she's not alone like that you know there are people who are facing the last months of their life not being able to see their friends and family which is the only thing they want to live for and, you know, and then they go. And, you know, how awful is that to have the last few months of your life just deprived of the only thing that you really makes you want to live? Have you been able to see your mum since she got over the COVID? No, only um, only through FaceTime. Um, and I'm just hoping that in a few weeks time uh, that they will be able to open it up again. But the thing is that she has deteriorated so much in the sort of you know in the moments between I mean it was it was bad before it started but there was some connection was I I suspect that when we go in next it will be like a big cliff edge because I think that she will stay blank and she would look at you as not knowing mm. um not knowing you're there and actually it's a wider reflection of what you're looking at which is that total understanding about end of life issues and to know that end of life issues are not just about dying, they're about living and how we live and what the quality of life is that we're living with. And a lot of that is to do with the contact that we have with our friends and our family in particular. I am going to write a letter to my children saying the various things that I would want if it happened to me. And I, I would want them not to be obsessive about thinking that I needed visiting every day because I think that some people let it take over the whole of their lives and I, I want them to get on and live their life and enjoy it. But to be able to show me that they love me and, of course, I would like them to visit sometimes along the way, I'd like them to make sure that I've got music that I really like and activity going on. But I would, you know, at a certain point like to go into a home so that I have company and people around me and that that side is probably the most important thing of all. You've been listening to Discovering Dementia. Thank you to Julia Hales for sharing her story. You can find out more about her work via her website, juliahales.com 
H-A-I-L-E-S. And you can get in touch with this podcast on social media. Go to at Discovering Dementia or at Dementia Podcast. Discovering Dementia was produced and presented by Penny Bell with original music by Leila Mitwali. Thank you.